How's that for an encouraging word? <laughs> we will look at that a little bit more closely later on. Thank you, Connie. Beautifully read, and appreciate that so much. And again, always, always, always thankful for the, the worship team who do such a wonderful job and uh, just not only sounding well, but leading us in worship. And thank you for doing that, you guys. Uh, before we pray, I just want to make a, another quick announcement that um, yesterday was uh, Ilde Valle's funeral service, and a lot of us were there. And um, there, is a, there was a lot of uh, food left over, so Joel Valle said uh, to send it to Shepherd of the Valley, and you guys enjoy the food after the service. So after the service, in honor of Ilda, we will have more food out there. You can stay around and, and uh, uh, munch on the sandwiches and the fruit and, and things like that. You'd be glad, to, we'd be glad to have you and just to spend some time in, in, uh, in fellowship. Uh, I sat down and just now, and Sue says, uh, says, did you get up at 3.30 this morning? And I said, uh, yeah, I did. It's just uh, I was carrying this, the, the whole funeral service with me for some reason. And I carried it with me, and, I, and, and I, I woke up with this strange dream that I was in this funk with this, but we were with other people, and so we decided to go to a mall, and I, out of, to comfort myself, I bought a pet iguana. <laughs> I would love to hear what a psychologist says about that, to interpret that dream. So I have no idea where that came from. But uh, yeah, I could tell you it was wearing a scarf, and uh, all kinds of things. <laughs> Who knows? Who knows how the mind works? Father, let's, let's pray together. Father God, teach us to be grateful people. We are asking you to open our eyes and ears to see and hear the blessings that we overlook because we're either obsessing over the past or we're too busy trying to plan the future. Father, teach me, teach us to say thank you. And we thank you for work. We thank you for peace when so many people are living without it. We thank you for friends, friends who we'll see and we'll meet today. We thank you for the health and strength to wake up and come to a place of worship. We thank you for the, the opportunity to worship with others who you love. We are thankful for the chance to hand out candy to kids in the school, in the, in the neighborhood this afternoon. We thank you for each pleasure that we enjoy today, the conversations, the games, the books, the films, the music, the naps, the chance to do something maybe out of the routine. We thank you for the time to maybe spend with more, more friends or other people that we love. But Father, we also ask that you bring to bring to you those who so desperately need you and need your comfort. We pray for those who are sick or in pain or in discomfort, who have gone through great loss. We ask that you give them peace and deep joy. We ask that you give them uh, healing and, and, uh, and according to your time, through your unending love. We ask that you bless those who are sad or grieving or lonely that you take away the ache of loneliness, that you surround them with people that they love and who love them. Father, we ask that you be with those people who are worried, who are full of anxiety, 
and they need to find peace of mind. We ask that you help them to feel the, the security that, it, that you offer, that you are good even when bad things happen. We ask that you keep us from being tested beyond what we can bear and you give us strength in those times of testing and temptation. Do you give us grace to resist and make clear the warning that is the foolishness of sin and idolatry? And Father, we also pray for those who are far away, who are far away from us, who live far away from us. I think of my own daughter and son-in-law and ask that you be with them and give them peace in their home. We pray for those who are apart from friends and families, uh, geographically and emotionally. And we ask that you bring them to us, at least in our hearts. Assure them that we love them. Make your presence real to them as we pray for them. And so, Father, through the day, Lord, we ask that you help us to control our tongues. That you keep us from all the disordered emotions that, that cause us to speak uh, before we think, that creates envy and jealousy and bitterness and resentfulness, uh, keep us from making trouble and involving others in our arguments or situations that we just make it worse. And Father, we pray with Isaiah today that you keep our thoughts pure and our speech careful. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. We are starting a new series this morning, uh, and we'll be heading this in through, um, uh, in through Advent. I thought we'd look and tackle some of the studies in Isaiah this month, and as we get to the end of November, we will be uh, looking at the verse, chapters 40 through 55, these, those great poems, and uh, as we look at the, uh, the Advent season. But uh, we're starting, I'm calling it Living on the Edge of the Inside, and uh, this is how I picture Isaiah as part of the... These, maybe we can call it the inner circle, but part of who has been called to God and yet been challenged to live on that edge of the, uh, the, edge of the inside, that it's still part of the inner parts of God, with God, but they're right on the cutting edge, right on the front lines of his ministry. Uh, and in chapter 6, we're going to look at the call that, that uh, Connie just read. Uh, I'm calling this, uh, this message this morning, The God Who Needs Us. Uh, I don't know... We don't stay up very late to watch late night TV. We, we usually go to bed before then. Uh, but several years ago, I remember Jimmy Fallon used to do these um, uh, uh, hashtags uh, on Twitter. I don't even have a Twitter account, so I don't really know how, to, how this whole thing operates too well. But um, he would send out a topic and then ask people to send in responses. And he sent out one topic several years ago. I, we see them on YouTube. That's why we, we know them. And they're kind of funny. Uh, and uh, usually they're pretty funny. And he sent one out several years ago called, Why Did I Say That? And uh, so I just want to share with you a few that uh, he shared on TV. I'm going to, uh, I censored a few. Uh, but uh, for example, uh, when I was a hostess at a restaurant, I once said to a guest heading into the restroom, enjoy. <laughs> Why did I say that? <laughs> Getting a haircut, Barbara asked me, what do I do for a living? I said, advertising, what do you do? He replied, I'm a barber. <laughs> Why did I say that? I forgot a guy's name, so I asked him how, how, how his name was spelled, and he looked at me like I was crazy and said, A-J. <laughs> I asked the clerk, are these the stairs that go up? He says, yes, and if you're at the top, they go down too. 
That's how stairs work, isn't it? I love this one. Guy at the DMV asked for my phone number, and I said, you wish. And he said, it's for the paperwork. <laughs> Job interview, me. Hi, how are you? Interviewer, great. How are you? Me, I'm good. How are you? <laughs> and we've all been caught in that loop, I think. And a uh, cop says, mind telling me why you were driving so close behind that car? I replied, because I'm a jerk. <laughs> Honesty is sometimes the best policy. I finally worked up the guts to speak on my crush, and all that came out was, you have cute nostrils. <laughs> and I think this one's my favorite. I'm a farm boy, and when my wife was in labor, I said, I'm not nervous. I've seen this a bunch of times with cows. <laughs> Not exactly what you want to say in labor. Now, when Isaiah said, uh, woe is me, I am undone, I am, I'm ruined, because I'm a man of unclean lips, he wasn't talking about things like this. Okay? Uh, we've all said things that embarrass us. He just said the words leave our mouth. You know, we're embarrassed by them. And we've also said things that really damage and, and cut people to the quick. But still, it's more serious than that, too. It's, it's more than that. It's much, much more serious than that. Uh, it, the, the situation is awful where Isaiah is concerned, and the situation where he is at is awful. And when he talks about what comes out of my mouth, you know, you remember Jesus saying that, telling the Pharisees, it's not what you put in your mouth that defiles a person, it's what comes out of the mouth that defiles a person. And what he means by that is that what comes out of our mouths is a reflection of our character. And that's, that's kind of what he's, what he's getting at. He is... Uh, he's talking about this character that, that uh, is part of him and that is part of the people that he is in. Uh, in chapter 6, is, uh, that famous verse was, Who will I send? And then Isaiah says, Well, send me. That has been used as a classic missionary verse uh, that missionaries use it all over the place. You know, to, uh, that the, say, who's, gonna, who's God going to send? Who can I send? And we say, Oh, I'll send me. And uh, I always thought that sounded pretentious uh, for a missionary like, like ourselves to use Isaiah's call and compare it to a call to go to, to do cross-cultural ministry. Uh, I never felt myself in that category, and I never felt myself to be uh, compared to Isaiah. Uh, for one thing, if I had been asked to do what Isaiah was asked to do, I don't think I would have done it, and I would have not enjoyed it too much. Uh, this cross-cultural ministry is much different than what Isaiah has to do. What Isaiah is doing in chapter 6 is something that, that is, is crucial and that it is, it is hard and it is tough and it is disastrous. Um, we, uh, we have this uh, book of Isaiah that is directed toward this situation in Israel and Judah. Uh, the book of Isaiah itself and we're going to look into the chapter a little bit more carefully, a little bit more detail. But I think before we understand what's going on here, because we read that section of, uh, of Isaiah and, uh, and go, you know, what, what is going on here? This sounds like just the opposite of what a prophet is supposed to do. And we will look at that a little bit more. But I think to understand Isaiah chapter 6, we do have to understand the book as a whole of where he's going with this. And it is a, it is a, a large book. Uh, that um, it can really easily be divided into two groups, chapters 1 through 39 and then chapters 4 through 66. And it, they're, they're two very, very, very distinct books. 
very distinct sections of the book of Isaiah. The first section, verses chapters 1 through 39, is heavy on this judgment, is heavy on this, this condemnation and this direct uh, conf- confrontation with Israel. And then the last half of the book is more about redemption and God's salvation and rescue. Uh, the first book, this, Isaiah is one of those prophets who actually prophesies to both Israel in the northern kingdom and Judah in the southern kingdom. And uh, when he's talking about Israel, he's saying, you know, it's coming. You're, you're, you're about ready to pay it all. Uh, Assyria is about to come over and conquer you because of what's happening in, in your country. And then he goes into to the last half and is prophesying to Judah, basically about the same thing, using Israel as, a, as an example. And so these two, group, these two sections are very, very different. And you might, if you're into Isaiah and you want to read commentaries or books, you might come across people who, who say there are two authors uh, there's first Isaiah and second Isaiah. I really don't have a problem with that either way. Uh, I kind of tend toward that this is probably a unified book with one author. But the point is, this is the book that we have. This is the book that's been preserved for us. And we need to understand that. Now, the first half of the book is all about judgment, but there is stories and, and prophecies of redemption and salvation. And the second half is all about salvation and redemption, but there are also sections of judgment in there as well. So it is a kind of a continuity, and it is the way the the book has been held together. And so he begins this book prophesying to Israel, really just in about 14 to 17 years, right before Israel gets wiped out. So this is what he's talking about. This is how bad the situation is. We're We're just a little over a decade away from complete destruction on the part of Assyria to Israel. So it's a very, very difficult situation. And it's also very distinctive. He has, he has given us some, uh, a new concept of God here, a new concept that we really don't grasp until we get to Isaiah. Now, we know that, that, that uh, the Bible has always em- emphasized that there is one God, one creator God, and they are to, to get rid of the idols and worship the one true God. But Isaiah just takes it a little bit further, and he's given us this new, new concept of what God looks like. And in all, this, in all this judgment, he is calling Isaiah to live on the edge of the inside. He is inside, but he's calling, calling Isaiah to move to the edge. And here in chapter 6, he is saying, he's saying, I need you. I need you. This is a God who needs us. This is a God who needs us. Now, I want to be clear here that he doesn't need us to exist, okay? I'm not talking about that, that he can't function without us. But what I am saying is that in his sovereignty, in his sovereignty, when he set in in motion the plan of salvation, the plan of redemption, the plan of rescuing creation, he sovereignly decided that he was going to use us. And we know the story. We know the story for the most part. And I've I've mentioned this before, that... that, uh, when God created the, the universe, when God created the heavens and the earth, it was always, always part of his plan for him to rule earth through human beings. That was always the plan. But we also know that things went disastrously wrong. Things went terribly wrong in the garden. But God didn't take all the creation and throw it in the, in the, in the heap, in the trash heap, and start all over again. He, he set out a plan to redeem it, to rescue it. And he called two childless nomads, Abraham and Sarah, and we began this plan, and through this family, he was going to redeem, redeem the planet. They were to be the light, the shining light on the hill. 
but it also went sideways. And they end up being part of the problem instead of part of the solution. But God continues to work through His people to bring about the Rescuer, the Redeemer, who we know as Jesus the Messiah. But the people had rejected Him. The people had, of Israel had turned their, way, turned their backs on Him. And it's not just because because that God is jealous that, you know, gosh, they're not, they're not recognizing me, they're not appreciating me. It's that if they did not follow God, then, then they end up exploiting, killing, violence. They end up, it's, they don't flourish as human beings. They don't flourish as a nation. And we see this consequence of their actions here in Isaiah chapter 6, really the first section of Isaiah. So we're going to look at this a little bit better. But he, he does give us this new distinctive of what God is supposed to be and what God has looked like. Because when they went to idols, when, they, when, the, when Israel went to idols and they, and they had their own gods and they had these separate gods, one thing you have to realize is their gods take up space. Okay? We, are, we, are, uh, we exist because we take up space. And because we take up space... We kind of defend our space. And we kind of cause rivalries and competition. And it, and it operates on the, on the individual level, in the community level, the city level, and the national level. That we start, this is how wars happen. This is how fights happen. This is how rivalries happen because we, our space is threatened or the resources that we need to maintain our space is threatened. And the gods in the mind of those people, the ancient, ancient believers, ancient people, these gods, these idols, they too took up space. They took up a lot of space. And even today, our gods take up a lot of space. When we start selling ourselves to these false gods, they take up a lot of space spiritually, emotionally, and mentally. And they start taking over. And when we sell ourselves to anything else but God, we start to become envious and jealous and protective and that's where rivalries and violence and that's where competition begins and all this this attacking one another because we're protecting our space and protecting what is important to us because we have sold out to something else but the God of Isaiah 6 is very very different and this is a new concept for them this is a new concept for us that we tend to forget so we're going to look at it first of all there's this shocking vision in verses 1 through 4 and Isaiah is sees things and he hears things. And this is important. These are important words. He sees and he hears. He sees. He's in a temple. But this isn't the temple in Jerusalem. This is the temple that the author of Hebrews describes, the temple of the universe, which the tabernacle, the, the temporary tabernacles and the permanent structure in Jerusalem, they are just copies, Hebrews says, of what the real temple is, which is where God occupies in the universe. And so he's in the temple. And he has this vision of God in this throne, and he's exalted high above the throne. He says his robe fills the temple. And then there's a seraphs flying around, two, like, like as Connie was reading, two, two, two wings to cover their face, two wings to cover their feet, and two wings to fly. And so that's what he's seeing. He's seeing all this. And then when they speak, he hears. And they hear, he hears, holy, holy, holy. The Lord Almighty, His glory fills the earth. And He says the, the threshold stuck, shook, the doorpost shook, and then the smoke filled the temple. What, is they, what are we getting at here? What is the picture here that Isaiah sees that nobody else saw? 
And that is that God is transcendent. That's what the theologians call it. It means that he fills the universe. He fills the world. He is all and in all. He's not somebody, some God who sits on a mountain and takes up space. He's not some uh, money changer who takes up money. He is in all and all. He is transcendent. This is the doctrine that he's teaching. And this is, this is a, a doctrine that we tend to suppress for some reason. That we don't really, I don't preach on it very often. We know other doctrines about God, but this one is something we don't capture. Maybe our minds can't, we can't wrap our minds around it. And part of my problem is that uh, I am so concerned about, about communicating how God loves you and wants to save you and rescue you. I, I tend to preach that a lot and talk about that a lot. And I want people to understand. I said, I want people to know that God loves them. And that's a good thing. But I also need to, need to, need to preach that he is all and in all that we stand in awe. And when they are shouting, holy, 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 they are saying that he is set apart. He is different. He is morally pure. He is set apart because of his wisdom, because of his understanding, because of his love too. Everything that sets him apart. He is holy, holy, holy. He is all and in all. And that's a, that's a thing that we, we tend to just kind of let it go by the wayside as believers and unbelievers. We don't really pay that much attention to it. I think we have lost, and this, is, this includes Christians, I think we have lost this sense of awe and wonder and mystery about God. And I think we're a poorer people for it. And I think unbelievers on the outside they just kind of go about their routine as if that's just the way life is. And they hardly give any kind of center of the universe a second thought. But if you're, if you're into you know, space and stars, which I love and it's just fascinating, and, or just going to the coast, or just you know, where we were two weeks ago at, at Lake Wallawa, and just get awed and get amazed by the mystery of God. We are an impoverished people because we have lost that. In our, in our modern Western culture, everything is pragmatic, everything is mechanical. Everything is cause and effect. And if it's not, if I can't see it, if I can't touch it, if I can't see how it works from, one, from A to B, I'm really not interested in it. If it doesn't work with my economic system or my societal system or whatever it is, then I'm not interested. But we need to recapture that mystery. And Isaiah hears and he sees this and he's changed. And he has this amazing admission in verses five through seven. He sees God and what is his reaction? It is not, wow, this is cool. His reaction is, I am ruined. I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. His reaction of seeing God is recognizing his own character. Not only does he see his own character as lost and as wicked and as, and as unjust, but he lives among a people that his, 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 he is a, a, an active 
willing participant in the injustice that is going on around him. And this is what's happening around him. If we, that's why we need to see verses one, for chapters 1 through 5. It's hard to tell exactly if chapter 6 is in chronological order. We like to think things in chronological order. We think one, one comes at, two comes after one, three comes after two, et cetera, et cetera. But the ancient authors, they didn't really think that way. They had a purpose for things. And I think Isaiah is telling us that, that um, all this happened. He's describing the situation in chapters one through five, and he's explaining, this is why I'm a prophet. This is why I am preaching. And if you go back through chapters 1 through 5, which we will uh, a little bit later on, you'll see the problem. It's not just some individual slip of the tongue or something embarrassing that we said. This is a collective. This is a people that is known for their injustice, for their exploitation of the poor and the widow and the orphan. These are the people who react violence with violence, who look for vengeance, who are doing human sacrifice, in one way or another. I mean, they, they are just living as wickedly as the pagans, and they're supposed to be God's people. And Isaiah is admitting here that I am party to this. I am a willing participant in what's going on here. And he's undone. I am ruined. I'm ruined, he says. But not quite. Because he recognizes his failing, God atones for his sin. And symbolically, the seraph picks up an ember and burns his lips. It's, a, it's kind of a sign of judgment here and atones for his sins. And now he is part of God's plan. He is part of what God wants to do. And God sort of muses to himself, who are we going to send to these people? Who are we going to send to these people? And Isaiah says, I'll go. I'll go. I'll go to the edge for this. I'll go for this. And he says, what do you want me to say? And then we get in those verses 9 through 13. This is the scary part. This is the part we don't like. Like it or not, this is about judgment. We don't like it, but that's what it is. Many of you may be familiar with a, uh, a lectionary. A lectionary is a collection of, of uh, readings that a lot of uh, uh, mainline churches use, Lutherans, Presbyterians, Episcopalians, Methodists. They have this, this lectionary. And what they do is they, they collect these verses, and, and it's supposed to carry you through the, through the Christian story every, every single year. And so you, you have a, a reading from the Old Testament, a psalm, uh, one from the gospel and one from the epistles. And this is supposed to carry you through, and they, it retells the Christian story every single year, beginning with Advent. Uh, very common, very common thing. Well, the lectionary on this section, uh, they just skip over verses 9 through 13. It's like, we don't want to deal with it. Too scary. Too threatening. And it sounds like that God is asking him to do exactly the opposite of what prophets are supposed to do. He says, you preach until they don't hear. You keep preaching until they don't see, until their hearts are, hearts are hardened. 
And it sounds like to us in the English world that, that this is the message he is supposed to preach. But Isaiah doesn't preach this one bit in the whole book. It doesn't even appear out of the book. So is he disobedient? No. What's going on here is that, the, that God is telling him the result of his message. He is substituting the result, the consequences of this message that he's going to do for the whole message as a whole. It's called a metonymy. We do this all the time. When I talk about the crown, if I say something about the crown or the administration or a suit, if I'm talking about the crown, we know that we're talking about the whole monarchy, not just the thing that you put on your head. That's kind of the idea here. He's talking about the result. This is what's going to happen. You're going to preach, and what he's doing, he's describing human nature to a T. He's saying, preach and preach and preach and preach this message. Preach repentance. Tell them to come back to me. If you want to flourish, this is how you do it. And, and what are the people going to do? They're going to dig their heels in, double down and say, no. You can preach all you want. And the more you preach, the more stubborn they get, the more prideful they get. And here's the problem, because they think they are the good guys. They're God's people. But Isaiah sees the vision and says, no, I'm not one of the good guys. We are not one of the good guys. But they double down and say, we're not going to listen. And sure enough, Assyria comes in and wipes them out. And that's the result. Yes, this is judgment. But don't get the idea that God is up in, in the clouds with lightning bolts in his hand, ready to throw one at you if you say something that you regret. That's not the idea here. This is a collective. This is a, this is a people. This is a nation. And we're talking about complete abandonment of God's teachings. We're talking about exploitation. We're talking about murders. We're talking about uh, slavery. We're talking about uh, rape. We're talking about human sacrifice. We're talking about all these things. That there's no chance for human flourishing going on here. And sure enough, Assyria comes in and wipes them out. But as typical of the prophets, there is this note of hope in there. He says there is a seed that will come out. There is a seed that will flourish. And that's just kind of a little bit of a hint of what Isaiah is going to be talking about later on. Where we'll see that, yes, there is a way out. There is a way to avoid this. There is a way to escape judgment. There is a way to live in peace. And it's through the servant of Yahweh in chapters 40 through 55 that we know as the Savior. It is a heavy passage, but he is calling him to live on the edge of the inside to do this. What about us? Like I said, I was always felt uncomfortable using Isaiah's call as part of a missionary call because my job was nothing like Isaiah's. It was much, much, much easier. And I don't think I know, I don't know if I would have made the sacrifice that I say I made. But what does it, but I do say this does has resonant for us. This does resonate for us. This does call us for something. The God who needs us. And that is we are too are called to live a life on the edge. On the edge of the inside. A life on the edge of the inside begins with a sense of embarrassment. That's where God begins. 
that when we come to a point and say, I'm ruined. I am a man of unclean lips. I am a man who is ruined. I am a man who lives just like everyone else, whose heart is just as dark as anyone else's. And we become embarrassed by that. It begins with an embarrassment. Frankly, I don't trust people who are never been embarrassed by their, their pettiness or their prejudice or, or their, uh, their envy or their jealousy. I, I, would, I would be careful around those people. But this is where it begins. It begins with a sense of embarrassment. This is where the faith begins. Because when that happens, we are emptied and we make room for the Spirit of God. This is the only way we can make room for the Spirit. God must empty us before he, must, before he fills us. Life on the edge of the inside recognizes solidarity with others. That we are not the good guys. And we know this in our head. We can, many of us can, can quote Romans. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We can all quote that. A lot of us can quote that. And we know this in our head. But do we really feel that way? Do we really feel that way? Speaking of words that um, are embarrassing that we say sometimes, <clears throat> uh, when I was on staff at uh, First Methodist in Irving, we did a, um, uh, a staff retreat. We didn't go anywhere fancy. We just borrowed a church in the area, in the Dallas area, to go to, and we spent the day there. And our Christian ed director and our senior pastor were like this. They never got along from day one. And... Um, we were going to the church and looking at the building and looking at their facilities. They had a really nice facilities. And um, they had a big platform with this monster pulpit. I mean, a huge pulpit where you step up, you had to climb up, you know, and, and then there. And our Christian ed director, she says, uh, she goes, gee, Ed, you could really look down your nose at us from there. <laughs> and we're all going, did she just say that? Yeah. <laughs> It was one of those things that just kind of came out, a reflection of the heart. Well, Isaiah knows better. We are in solidarity with the people who say things like that. We are in solidarity. We are not looking down our nose. We cannot look down our nose at everybody else. We are in solidarity with them before repentance and after repentance. A life on the edge of the inside carries a message of hope. And you may be looking at this going, hope? Here, in, in Isaiah chapter 6, there's hope here? And I would say, yes, there is. Yes, there is. This judgment is coming because God cares too much. God cares so much that he will not put up with this. I mean, what kind of God would he be if he just shrugged his shoulders and turned, his, turned a blind eye to stuff like this, to the evil in the world, what kind of God would he be? He cannot. He cannot stand by this. The opposite of good, they say, is not evil, but indifference. And we really do not want a God who is indifferent to suffering. We don't want a God who is indifferent to pain and exploitation and cruelty. We don't want a God that's indifferent to that. And so even though it sounds harsh, 
It is a message of hope because our God is not indifferent. And life on the edge of the inside is life that is both an echo of tradition and a vision for the future. And what I want to say here is that we are not to be spiritual plagiarism, just copy whatever we see back in the Old Testament or back what we've seen before. Or back in, back in my day when I was in college, we did it this way. It is both based on tradition, based on the Word of God, but it is also created for the future. It is vision because the demographics change, the, the atmosphere change, the culture change, the, everything changes. We stand on the shoulders of tradition, but we be creative in the future. And a life on the edge of the inside is a life of responsibility. We take responsibility. If we have trusted Christ, if Christ has called us and given us eternal life and abundant life, then we have a responsibility. We have a responsibility to live on the edge of the inside. That doesn't mean we, ever, we never go back to the center. We have to make several disciplined trips back to the center of God and, and retreat from that occasionally or we would just totally burn out. We have to have that rhythm of, of, of silence and quiet and then mission and ministry. And we go back and forth, but we have a responsibility. It's not just that, okay, God and me, we're good. And many of you may have met people like that who you say, well, yeah, I, I, I accepted Jesus in my heart at, at uh, Vacation Bible School, so Jesus and me, we're, we're good to go. If that's all it is, then you're not getting it. We have a responsibility to live on the outside, on the, in, the, in, the edge of the inside. I want to close just by reading one more passage here. And this is a parallel passage. It's incredibly parallel to Isaiah 6. And that's Luke chapter 5. One day as Jesus was standing by the lake of Gesenaret, uh, and with the people crowding around him and listening to the word of God, he saw at the water's edge two boats left there by the fishermen who were washing their nets. He got into one of the boats, that one belonging to Simon, and asked them to put out a little from the shore. And then he sat down and taught the people from the boat. And when he finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out to the deep water and let down the nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, uh, we've worked hard all night and haven't caught anything. But because you say so, we'll, go, we'll let down the nets. And when they had done so, they caught such a large number of fish that the nets began to break. And so they signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled the boats so full that they began to sink. And when Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, go away from me, Lord. Go away, because I am a sinful man. For he and all, his, all of his companions were astonished at the catch of the fish they had taken, and so were James and John, the son of Ze, sons of Zebedee, Simon's partners. And then Jesus said to Simon, Don't be afraid, because from now on you're going to catch people. So they pulled their boats on the shore, and they left everything and followed him. Do you see the parallel with Isaiah? You've got both people expressing their unworthiness. And Jesus is saying, that's precisely why I'm calling you. Because you know you are unworthy. Because you are empty, I will fill you. Now, I don't know what they were thinking. I don't know if they were thinking, okay, Jesus is finally going to uproot Rome. Is going to finally throw, overthrow Rome. I don't know, or, or look, you know, look for vengeance against the people who have, who have oppressed the, uh, the Jews. I don't know what they were thinking. But they became his learners, his disciples. And Jesus taught them what it was like. 
He taught them that it was like to care for the poor, to feed the hungry, to touch the untouchables, to be with the people on the edge, to be with them. That's what he taught them. And just like Isaiah, they were empty, and yet God filled them. The point of all this is this, is that our life is a gift, but it is also a mandate. It is also a calling. That our forgiveness, our salvation is through the grace of God. But he also says, we want, I want you to be responsible. I want you to take your place in the redemption story. And yes, it is risky because you will have to live out there on the edge of the inside. But I will be with you. I will fill you. One of the most fascinating things about this story in Luke is that they had this huge catch and they left it. I mean, fishermen, they're like the lowest part of the class system. They work on the water, which is a symbol for chaos. They, they can't make it on the land. They're usually uneducated. They're certainly not part of the religious elite, for sure. And they rec but they recognize they were unworthy, and that's why, Jesus, that's why Jesus is using them. And so they're out there on the sea, and Jesus tells them where to go, where to throw their nets, and they fill in the biggest catch of their life, or at least up to that point, the biggest catch of their life, and they're there, and then Jesus says, well, leave it and come follow me. They didn't even get to sell the fish. And this is what strikes me. If I was starting a business, let's say a restaurant, and, uh, and I feel like I was praying about this, and I thought God was telling me to do this, and and the first night of the restaurant, the first night we opened, we had, you know, we had lines. We had to wait two-hour waits for, for a table in this restaurant. And I'm thinking, God is really blessing this. How ready do you think I would be to leave this and go do something else? I would say, hey, God's really blessing this. I must be doing God's will. I think it's incredible that these fishermen were filled with God, filled with the Spirit, and they left the fish and didn't sell it to go and follow him. I think it's because they realized that Jesus was going to fill them with what they really needed. He was going to fill them with what they really wanted. A life of abundance and eternal life. He is calling us to live on the edge of the inside. Because he needs us. In his sovereignty, he's decided that he needs us. Let's pray. We'll invite the worship team back up.